Is there a mysterious world grid joining all ancient sites across the globe? Is there a line uniting Viking forts, the Oracle of Delphi and the pyramids in Giza? Could the Viking ships have been more advanced than we think? Could there be a connection between Rapa Nui and Cusco? Some propose that there is evidence of white-bearded people uniting the two places. But is there any truth to these claims? Welcome to Digging Up Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we examine strange claims about alternative history and ancient aliens in popular media. Do the claims hold water to an archaeologist or are there better explanations out there? I'm your host, Frederick, and this is episode 34. And we're back with our aliens after a more extended excursion with Graham Hancock. This time we will investigate how the aliens could have oriented themselves on Earth while visiting and if there's any remains of this left. We will cover the supposed world grid. Could Plato have discovered this alien travel pattern in his day? From there we travel north and look at strange Viking forts. Were these alien fueling station? From there we travel north and look at strange Viking forge. Were these alien fueling station? Or what do we really know about these old Viking ring forts? What was their function and in what sort of time were they built in? Lastly, we return to Rapa Nui and look into some strange claims about the white and bearded seafarers going from Cusco in Peru to Easter Island. Now remember that you find sources, resources and reading suggestions on our website diggingupancientaliens.com. There you will also find contact info if you notice any mistakes or have any suggestions. And if you like the podcast, I would really appreciate if you left one of those fancy five-star reviews that I heard so much about. If you want the video presentation of this, we're now going to split up the episode for YouTube in, well, 10 to 15 minute chunks. Now that we've finished with our preparations, let's dig into the episode. Our path to decoding the ancient alien code starts with a grid. The world grid, the planetary grid, earth energy grid, or simply earth grid. It's an idea that a grid spans the earth. And as we will learn, this grid does not have a set of easily defined properties. The world grid is a concept thought up by William Becker and Beth Hagen in 1978 that the Earth can be sectioned into different dodecahedrons, or as Beth Hagen describes it, more in details. Well, here you can see a cluster of 10 of the triangles 
of the 120 that Plato mentioned. Besides seeing this as triangles, you can see it as 15 equators that actually cut the Earth in half. You see they all go around whichever way you look. They're all great circles. It's a geometric model of the Earth energy grid of what Plato discovered 2,500 years ago. The idea is that this grid spans our globe and ties ancient sites, mysterious places and other locations together. According to Becker and Hagens, we find increased UFO activities and megalithic structures. As you might presume, uh, a part of this idea is inspired by Plato, who was among the first who suggested the Earth was actually not flat, or is more maybe more <laughs> Plato's student Aristoteles, who present the concept of an actual spherical Earth. Hold on, don't write that angry email just yet. I know that Hesiod, Anaximander and Pythagoras are credited with suggesting a spherical Earth. And critics have pointed out that Hesiod is way too early for this type of idea, but... If we would find any first-hand sources, we, we might re need to revisit that claim. Anaximander thought Earth looked like a column drum, and Pythagoras is basically attributed to everything in ancient Greece. And pre-Plato, many philosophers uh, argued for a flat Earth, while the shape would um, differ philosophers like uh, Thales, Xenophanes, and Anaxagoras argued that Earth was flat, something that aligned with the religious idea of the time where gods represented the sky, stars, and uh, where there was a real fear of the sky literally tumbling down and you know destroying all life on the planet. Becker and Hadrian's based this agreed idea on something Plato wrote in Phaedo in verse 110b. It is said first that the earth itself, if one could view it from above, would appear to the eye like one of those balls of 12 leather pieces. Now if you play a barbarian in Dungeons and Dragons, you're most familiar with this shape uh, that you find in the D12 dice. Or if you want to use the fancier word for it, it's the dodecahedron. But note that Plato does not mention really the shape, but allude that since it's a ball with 12 pieces, you know, you have a limited combination set that uh, would still make it a ball. Plato somewhat continues describing the structure of the Earth in Timaeus, a text maybe more known for its Atlantis connection. See episode 30 on that. But while he spends a lot of uh, time going into detail on how the different elements are built, like fire, air, water and Earth, he does not give the shape really on our planet in this text. There is this fifth element within the text, but in Timaeus it refers to more or less universe itself. The docahedron shape is in the text um, decorated with animal patterns, alluding that it might be constellation projected on it. 
an idea that Plato probably borrows from the Pythagoreans. But um, where did Becker and Hagen get that 120 number that we heard before? And this is a little bit of a mystery to me, since looking at Phaedo and Timaeus, we don't get a whole lot about that the earth shape in that sense the closest i can find is uh, the platonic objects now plato thought the four elements had different forms fire is a tetrahedron air is a octahedron water is a icosahedron and earth is a cube the text also argues that all the elements have smaller building blocks each element is formed by a smaller set of triangle. In this case, fire consists of 24 triangles, but water, an isocahedron, consists of 120 triangle. Or rather, Plato's idea of what we today might call a water molecule consists of 120 atoms. Again, we have an idea that starts to crumble if you actually read what their source material says. Of course, this hypothesis also comes with even stranger claims. For example, Huge Newman in this episode talks about the, the different power center that exists within the world grid. There's fascinating ideas that they were actually using this for anti-gravitational purposes. And they were actually able to lift and quarry and move these huge megalithic blocks great distances around the planet. And so we have to question, was there something to do with this grid that they were actually harnessing and they were able to use the energies from it to move and construct these sites? Now these power centers consist or exist within the world grid system in locations such as Stonehenge, the Giza pyramids and Coral Castle. The issue with these type of claims is that we can actually test if something strange is going on here and as far as I can find, gravity seems to work just well and fine at both Stonehenge and Giza pyramids. And we also have a quite good understanding how Edward Ledskalnin built the site with uh, simple block and tackle methods. Some even claim that uh, the supposed uh, Philadelphia experiment used the grid lines to teleport to USS Eldridge between Norfolk uh, and Philadelphia. One of the more significant issues for the Philadelphia experiments is... Well, the ship never was in Philadelphia to start with, according to Naval History and Heritage Command. Now, USS Eldridge was located or stationed in New York when the experiment was supposed to have taken place in 1943. And we know the exact movement of the ship during this time, and it's almost impossible that it should have been in Philadelphia. Of course, the believer think the evidence from the Navy is just part of this larger conspiracy. And in a conspiracy mind, the proof against something becomes evidence for the conspiracy itself. Now, there's also claims from David Childress and others that the grid is used to wirelessly charge the spacecraft. But again, energy can be measured and quantified. One that comes to mind, for example, is the Earth magnetics field. But I can't find any model or explanation close to what the world grid proponents and the ancient aliens suggest. 
While several forces operate on Earth, none shape up as neat grids. The ancient sites they claim incorporate a grid are cherry-picked and the ones they think fit within the model are kept, while the misses are simply left out of the theory. This is nothing more than just selective thinking. This is a common trope among the more fringe theorists and something essential to look out for. William Becker, Beth Hagens and other authors like Bruce Cathy and Hugh Newman use this to defend their grid theory, basically. But let's leave this web of logical fallacies and move to a place where the grass is green and the beer is dark. Welcome to Ireland, home of leprechauns, Guinness and whiskey. But we're not here for that. No, we're here because there are hints of a stellar alignment that might suggest an extraterrestrial connection. One of these monuments can be found in an area locals call Bruna Bonny, located some 40 kilometers from Dublin or 25 miles, and contain a minimum of 37 passage tombs from the Irish Neolithic era. Within Bruna Bonny, we have three large sites of these monuments, Douth, Knoft and Newgrange. And it's in Newgrange the ancient alien proponents claim that we find this alien star alignment. While there are more tombs in the area, the focus is on the large chamber tomb that is beautifully, beautifully decorated. And this pattern type is usually called megalithic art and consists of loskens, curls and circles found here and in Gavernais in France. Something worth noting is um, that not all of these patterns are in visible places. Some are actually hidden from view. And the reason for this is unknown. It can be argued that it might be a ritualistic drawing, a message only for the gods. Some would say that it's due to a change in the building plan or that they may be reused stones from another previously important monument. And the last statement might be the ones that's most plausible. We know that the area has been occupied since the, well, at least Mesolithic times. And in the western region of this monument, we have signs of an earlier turf mound. And the turf mound seems to have been created around 3200 BCE. And while the construction of the main part of the Karn was started to be constructed around 3000 BCE. But how about that alignment? Well, it comes in two parts. The first is the winter solstice alignment that can be found at the Newgrange tomb. During about five days a year, during the winter solstice, a pensive of light is visible in the rear chamber of the grave. And this is possible due to what's referred to as, by archaeologists, a roof box. The sunlight does not enter the grave through the entrance, but um, but of a kind of a dormer. But this is sunken in, maybe a better description might, that it's a funnel. One issue is that we're actually unsure if this roof box is an accurate reconstruction. 
when the archaeologist O'Kelly started to excavate Newgrange in 1962, it had fallen in quite some disrepair. But it was not the first time the passage tomb was excavated or opened. The earliest documented opening was by Edward Lived, and it took place around 1699 CE. And later excavation would follow in 1746, and disturbance around the entrance was reported in 1776. And it seems to have been opened in early 1802. William Wilde mentioned the roof box in 1849, but then it's theorized to have been an entrance maybe to a second chamber. So when O'Kelly started reconstruction, he did not only have to deal with years of you know roots from trees moving things around, but also all of these past excavation to deal with. And something worth noting is that before O'Kelly's reconstruction, the roof box was not in a position that allowed light to enter the chamber, but by moving the stones designated RS1 and RS2 in the base of the roof box, the room would now see the sun during the solstice. Other passage tombs from this area have solstice alignments, but the alignments vary between locations. But we should consider if O'Kelly had restored the lintel differently, would this change how this phenomenon took place? Was O'Kelly repairing the mound trying to find the astronomical connection, or was this just a happy coincidence? It would be strange if the roof box did not have some sort of astronomical function, but we should remember that what we see today is not what they might have seen all those thousands of years ago. So we can agree with the ancient aliens crowd here actually that the solar alignment might have been significant for the Neolithic people here. But in the show, they don't really add much meaning to the solstice alignment. But then we're taking for, well, quite some ride. The passage and chamber are cruciform in shape. They're shaped like a cross, which we think is very significant because it seems to be based on the shape of the constellation Cygnus, which is the swan constellation of the sky. Anthony Murphy is correct that the tomb is shaped like a cross, but the comparison between the Swan constellation and the New Grange is quite far-fetched. I guess you can make it work if you remove part of the constellation, but then it's not it's not the Cygnus constellation longer. Even if we only focusing on this crucifix form, it doesn't really match there either. The tomb has one short chamber going northeast and one even shorter room heading southwest and trying to pair the mound with Cygnus is basically just wishful thinking and on the verge of being pareidolia but there is an actual alignment that the ancient alien authors have missed most of these tombs are all skewed right there's no excellent explanation for why this is, but it's not only the burials are skewed, we also find more arts and objects in the right side of the tomb. Also worth noting is that most would accept a solar or solstice connection, but 
there is no evidence for a stellar link at Newgrange or any other passage tomb for that part. This is just a wishful thinking from the proponents of these type of fringe ideas. And this is not new really, but we have covered the Orion correlation theory in the past, which is usually described something like this. I discovered in the early 80s that there was a correlation between Orion's belt and the layout of the three pyramids. You have two large pyramids aligned with each other and a third smaller one offset from that alignment. Well, that's the same way you have with the stars. You have two bright stars and a third less bright star offset from the line of the other two. The correlation is evident. Now, this theory is predominantly argued by Robert Bauval and our friend Graham Hancock. They have in turn based most of their thought on Robert Temple's idea in The Serious Mystery. But um, in their book, they have removed the aliens uh, more studious. But as you might suspect, there is an issue. The pyramids of Giza do not align with Orion's belt if you don't flip the pyramids or the constellation upside down. Something Baval leaves out is that while the stars and pyramid might not be a perfect match today, he claims that they were back in 10,500 BCE. The magical date we know from Hancock, but there's one hitch. The pyramid is offset 38 degrees, but if it's based on Orion's belt in 10,500 BCE, it should be 50 degrees offset now. Not really a perfect match if we look closer, right? They also use different locations as evidence for this theory, the Orion's Belt theory. We have Teotihuacan, Hopi village in the US. We have the Thurnborough of Henges in England. All of these sites suffer from the same issue on closer examination. They do not really line up with Orion's Belt in another way that Well, if you squint your eyes, (laughs) it's a fun idea, but it's not really credible. You can also find a lot of things that kind of look like other things by just random chance. I have three birthmarks that kind of look like Orion's belt. Does that mean that I have some ancient alien DNA and can start doing some Jedi mind tricks? And on that note, we'll take a quick break and I will go and see if I can levitate large boulders with my mind. But when we're back, we will investigate ancient flight path. Let's go back in time. 1921 to be precise. A man named Alfred Watkins is visiting Blackverdeen in England on a beautiful, well if England has such a thing, summer day. On June 30, Alfred was pondering what sight to see and while Pouring over the map, he noticed something. A straight line could be drawn from Croft Ambury, over hill points through Blackverdeen, over Risborough Camp, ending at the high ground over at Stretton Garrison, a location Watkins assumed to be the top of an old Roman garrison. When looking closer on the map, Watkins started to note more location within a straight line. And this could not just be simple chance, according to Watkins. Elfrin explains the origins of these lines as follow. Presume a primitive people, with few or no enclosures, wanting a few necessities, salt, 
Flint Flakes and, later on, Metals, only to be heard from a distance. And the shortest way to such a distant point was a straight line. The human way of attaining a straight line is by sighting, and accordingly all these early trackways were straight. Watkins postulated that these ancient people took their sightlines from peaks, of course not higher than 300 meters or a thousand feet, but getting your lay on the land, you get it, so to say, is one thing, but how did they keep their direction while they were off the peak? To maintain these straight trade routes, Watkins claimed that they built mounds, circular earthwork and other artificial markings. These mounds and monolithic monuments were later repurposed into burial or cult sites, but their original function was a way marker. But they could also plant clusters of trees or use natural formations as water and stones to mark out the route for the wanderers. Watkins was not the only one having these type of ideas, as Keith Fitzpatrick Matthew pointed out, an article was published on a similar theme just 30 years prior, titled Ancient Trackways in England. This paper was published in the Antiquary, volume 19, in 1889, and written by an architect named Joseph Hutton Spencer. And our architect friend had a similar thought to Watkins. And Hutton started his paper with an anecdotal account on how he saw Burton Grange, a broad pathway about 600 feet, which is crossed by another by the same length, thus forming a Greek cross. Spencer suggests that uh, there are these straight lines connecting locations in the landscape and that there are astronomical connections. But what Spencer failed to research was what we were looking at was most likely the old remains of the Barton Grange Old Gardens. Looking back at the map from Batten Court, we see this feature being part of the garden area. Yikes. While both Watkins and Spencer had a similar idea, Watkins is the origin for the ley lines as we know them today. But Watkins most likely didn't know about Spencer's article published 30 years earlier. But that's kind of the thing. The ideas aren't that strange, actually. The human mind is quite excellent in finding patterns, and it's almost hardwired within our brains. This is how we can interpret a shadow of a lamp to be a person or how we see shapes in the clouds. Random noise can turn into some sounds we can understand or see writing in you know, random places. So what Watkins and Spencer have committed is a type 1 error. They have a false positive and believe something to be true while it's not. And today we can be reasonably sure that these leylands are nothing more than coincidence. We know the site were constructed at widely different times and had a large diverse purposes. The archaeological dating has become so good that Watkins' idea of these Neolithic straight trade routes are simply impossible. These ley lines are also selected with a bias. 
locations from different times and eras are uh, that fit are included within the lines and other sites that do not fit are simply left out. So while the science might or the science isn't there, I want to highlight that neither Watkins nor Spencer seems to have any claims about spirits, energy forges or UFOs. These are things that got introduced later when the ley line idea got um, adopted by the New Agers. We briefly looked at ley lines back in episode 13 when Giorgio Sukalos claimed that there is a line between Calais in France and Calais in Italy. And even when he made up a bunch of locations that do not exist in France or Switzerland or Italy for that part... He could, could not really get that ley line straight. Unfortunately, we will witness that the ancient alien crowd has yet to learn their lesson because Giorgio described ley lines as something extraordinary happened along those ley lines because the once very physical and real visit of extraterrestrial beings has been forgotten. So the idea is simply that the lane lines was some sort of navigation system for the aliens who were visiting Earth. My best guess is that they left some unquantifiable energy that maybe New Agers believe <laughs> and talk about on, on these different sites. And let's for a moment set aside the fact that the believers are the only ones that can really measure these energies and that the locations include places uh, that range from Neolithic to overgrown gardens uh, from the 1800s. What is the best evidence for the ley lines, according to the ancient alienists? Shockingly, we will find it in Denmark, consisting of several round Viking fortresses. And these forts are known today as Trelleborgar. Let's start with some of these histories of these fortifications before we get into the ancient alien claim. Something worth noting is that fortification has been a part of history for quite a long time. And the earliest examples of fortifications in Scandinavia can be found in Denmark and in southern Sweden in Skåne or Scania and can be dated to Neolithic times. In Sweden, there are about 1,000 of these defense systems, most of which can be found around Mälaren Valley. And most of the intense, most of the most intense construction period was during the migration period, that's 300 CE to 800 CE, and consisted of especially highlands forts, but also in some cases lowland forts. And the largest of these fortifications is Torsburgen on Gotland. And that wall stretching almost two kilometers. And Scandinavian fortification building, of course, continued during the Viking Age era. As settlements such as Vestergaard on Gotland, Birka in Stockholm and Hedeby in Denmark. And what makes Trelleborgar different is their design and the period in which they were built in. They are all circular. They have four ports aligned with the cardinal direction and were created in a very short time span. The gates corresponding with cardinal points seems to have been inspired by Flemish fortresses 
construction a bit earlier. And round fortifications, they are not new, for example. We have Ekeborg on Öland, but these are perfectly round and have a very identifiable layout. And the currently accepted Trelleborgar is, well, of course, Trelleborg on Själland, Nonnebacken, Fyrkat and Agersborg. And we recently actually added another location, Borgring, also located in Själland, to this group. Then we have the question that might upset a few Danish listeners. Is there Trelleborgar in Sweden? And here we have an excellent example of regional identity influencing archaeology. There are three suggested locations in Skåne, Scania. Borjaby, which is more or less accepted as a Trellenborg today. We have Helsingborg and then we have Trelleborg in Skåne. It's mainly with the last example in the Swedish city of Trelleborg, where Danish archaeologists are most skeptical about the definition. For a long time, some protests have been against classifying the ring fortification in Trelleborg as uh, what the city basically is named after and seems to indicate that this is. And that was mainly due to regional identity influencing these type of ideas that Skåne would not have these ring fortifications simply. When were these ring forts built then? Here comes what's really fascinating. They're all constructed around 980 CE. The chronological test in Trelleborg on Själland showed that the construction started in the winter between 980 and 981 CE and the logs of Fyrkat started to be cut down in 979. Agersborg was built maybe earlier. We see indication that a possible start date might have been around 970 CE. But this put the construction of the fortifications firmly within the reign of Harald Blåtand or Harald Bluetooth. The one who that technology might use to listen to this is named after. And these ringforts all have identical layouts or they almost have a similar layout. While Trelleborgen Fyrkat are split into four equal quadrants consisting of 16 longhouses in total. Agersborg consists of 12 quadrants and 48 longhouses. They are also strategically placed along important trade routes, except for Agersborg. None of them are built on previous settlements. While not placed directly by the water, except again Agersborg, they are relatively close by when you know you account for the land rise in Denmark. But their function was to keep peace within Denmark and not really to protect against outside raiders. So having them closer inland makes perfectly sense, to be honest. And Harald Blåtan's reign was lined with internal struggle. And it seems as Harald ordered these to be structured as an attempt to keep the peace. And their intended purpose appears to not have been working very well in the end. And just a few decades later, the fortifications was actually abandoned. 
Now, armed with all of this knowledge, let's see what the mainstream science is trying to hide from you. Now, the aliens' proponents are, as usual, claiming that the scientists are baffled. If we should believe these fringe theories, we seem to spend much of our times being very befuddled about everything. Except, well, we have spent very much time studying the Viking Age era navigation, so we know how they simply can create these accurate uh, cardinal points within the forge, a simple and yet foolproof trick uh, thought in survival situations is, with different variation, the sunstick. And the most accurate version of this uh, sunstick is, takes about a day, but you get very exact direction. And aliens proposing think it's far-fetched and suggest a more alternative explanation. Given that the Vikings were basically seafaring people and these sites are spread out so far over land and great distances, it implies that maybe they had some other way of getting to these places. Perhaps they even were able to fly. Now, how they would fly, what the technology was, it's a good question, but it seems unlikely that they would be able to find all these spots, survey them, and place monuments and structures there if they were simply a seafaring race. Michael Barr and others point out that the fortresses of Agersborg, Fyrkat, Eskaholm and Trelleborg are in a straight line. And looking at the map, they appear somewhat linear, but if we draw a line from Agersborg and Trelleborg, it will miss Fyrkat with about 1.5 kilometers. Isn't it a little bit strange that these surveying aliens would be that much out of course? Also, did you maybe react to the new name that suddenly appeared? The alien proponents do claim that there's a fort on Eskaholm, a small Danish island, except there isn't any known archaeological site there at all. They either somehow misinterpreted the location of Nunnebakken to be further west, or they simply just decided to move Nunnebakken to fit within their preferred ley line. And things do not get better when they try to connect these sites uh, with other locations further south. How could a straight line link ancient Egypt, the pyramids, the oracle of Delphi in Greece, and Viking fortresses that would have been established thousands of years later? It made no sense. But it does make sense if these installations are along straight lines across the Earth's grid, and if somehow those straight lines marked navigation routes for ancient extraterrestrials that use them as markers to navigate the globe from society to society. One important rule with ley lines is that the distances is not your friend. Can we get a line to get through all of these locations? The answer is sadly no. If we start in Agersborg, aiming for the Giza Plateau, we will miss Fyrkat with 1.3 kilometers, Trelleborg with 11 kilometers, and Delphi with 306 kilometers. The ley line seems rather useless for navigation, to be honest, and the idea proposed by the alien theorists that these lines are flight path, except that planes tend to fly in an arc, and that would be uncontroversial to assume aliens might have had a 
similar flying technique if they were flying around here on Earth at least. Even so, why would aliens want to connect this force that was used within a such short time span? We know too much about this fortification to be able to attribute them to anyone else other than Danish Vikings. And they clearly didn't need aliens to construct them since they aimed to keep the local rebellious people under control. The ley line theory isn't more than seeing patterns where there simply aren't any. And since I have done a whole segment about Denmark without making any snide remarks, I deserve a break and a treat. While I get myself a standard Danish breakfast, which consists of a six-pack of beer and sausages, we have relocated to the Pacific Ocean. Now, the next part of this ancient alien episode was supposed to be about geodesic placement. And looking closer at this segment, you realize that they basically repeat the claims about the world grid, but adding misinterpreted myth to it. We have looked into most of these myths in the past, but Giorgio Sokolos uh, did bring up a claim that, that got me thinking. Since we covered the Danes without any incidents, how about we go after one of Norway's national heroes? You might be even familiar with the name, Thor Heyerdahl. Let's hear the claim from Ancient Aliens and see how it later connects with Thor. The walls at Cusco are identical to the walls we can find in the base foundations of some of the Moais on Easter Island. And those two places are so far apart. I wonder how was it done? Either the builders traveled from one place to the other, or the builders in each culture were visited by the same teachers. The teachers from the stars, extraterrestrials. Before I get bombarded with email from Norwegians, I will not claim that Heyerdahl was an alien proponent. Wait until the end of this segment before writing that comment. And we will circle back to the stonemasonry later, but if you're not familiar with Heyerdahl, he is usually described as an adventurer with a background in zoology and geography. He was born in 1914 in uh, southern Norway and became famous for his voyage on the raft named Kontiki in 1947 over the Pacific Ocean. And the reason for this journey was that Heyerdahl wanted to prove his theory of migration from South America and more on that later. Now the migration pattern into Polynesia is predominantly come from Southeast Asia and Melanesia. But there's been question if there might have been a South American contact. And in 2020, a group of scientists published a paper in Nature in where DNA in Polynesian people could be tied with indigenous people of Colombia. And the earliest estimated contact would be around 1150 on Fatuhiva. And it was on this island Heyerdahl first came up with his hypothesis. And this contact might have been when the Polynesian explorers made their lengthiest explorations. Like the article authors, I want to note that this does not show the direction of the contact. 
it's just as likely that Polynesian explorers reached north of South America and brought people back as the other way around. Paul Wallin from Uppsala University suggests that the next step would be to assess how well their model fits with material culture studies, ethnohistorical records, linguistics and evidence of plant and animal distributions. So this is undoubtedly some fascinating ongoing research and with more genetic studies of the population we will undoubtedly learn more about our past but does this mean that Heyerdahl was onto something? To some extent, it could be argued that Thor is somewhat correct, but there is more to Heyerdahl's ideas that uh, is usually brought up. A large part of Heyerdahl's Kantike theory was that while migration did occur from Southeast Asia, it could not explain the monuments that he saw on the islands. Heyerdahl suggested that there had been a migration from South America of white-bearded, Caucasian-looking people with blue eyes, red or blonde hair, and all of that. And these culture-bearers were the people who introduced the idea of culture and stone-cutting to Polynesia. And these ideas are based on the Spanish chronicles who describe the Incan god Viracocha as a white-bearded man. And this description is, as we noted with the claim about Quetzalcoatl being white, an idea presented predominantly by Spanish colonizers. And the first claim that Quetzalcoatl was white is from the priest Geronimo de Mendieta, and Pedro Chiesa de Leon was the first who described Viracocha as white in 1553. But no scholar has found a pre-colonial description of these gods that match what the Spaniards say that they look like after contact. So Heidel took this white god idea and changed it up a little bit. Instead of one Persian, Viracocha or Kontiki, was represented by a larger group. And this group emigrated from the West to South America, bringing culture, stonework, written language and society. And this theory included these white culture bearers made monumental buildings around Titicaca. Heyerdahl claimed in 1979 that... Incas lived more or less as savages till a light-skinned, bared foreigner and his entourage came to their country, taught them the ways of civilization and departed. Heyerdahl suggests that this white god possibly originated from Morocco, where he also suggests that Nordic people of Scandinavia might have stemmed from. That's why Heyerdahl sent out, uh, set out on other expeditions like Ra 1 and Ra the second uh, with boats based on Egyptian drawings. And we see other examples of scientific racism in Heyerdahl's writing in the book Fatuhiva, Back to Nature from 1974. Heyerdahl describes an excursion where to collect skulls. Before traveling to Fatuhiva for a scientific study in 1937, Thor was asked by, on one part, his university, and on the other part by the chief anthropologist in Nazi Germany, Hans Günther, to bring back indigenous craniums. 
To say time, Heyerdahl and his wife decided to head to an old temple where it was rumored that there were just hundreds of skull laying around. After arriving at the site, they learned that the rumor was accurate and Heyerdahl described what he saw. There must have been more than a hundred, like a hatchery of ostrich eggs. Some were complete and bleached like a coral by the strong sun. Others were broken, fragmentary, and even stained green by age. I did not need calipers to see that most were typical longheads, like Europeans, some more than others. Thor refers there to the cephalic index, an idea introduced by the Swedish professor Anders Ratzius and further worked by Gustav Ratzius, his son. The idea they had was to try to prove a hierarchy among the races by measuring the craniums, dividing them into three groups, long, medium and short heads. And this type of racial anthropology was coming until the first half of the 20th century. And the habit of stealing craniums was also coming. Retzius had some 800 skulls collected in the end. Today these skulls are slowly being returned to their origins. The Retzius collection is of course going slower. And uh, then the smaller from Heyerdahl. But they are currently being returned to the countries of origins. And according to Heidel's Kantiki theory, the Polynesians were populated by two distinct immigration waves. First came the white-bearded culture bringers and settled. And then we have this second wave of yellow-brown race that uh, Heidel refers to as the Maori Polynesian from Southeast Asia. And this second invasion was of a more violent and primitive people that overtook the islands by force and sometimes, uh, just sometimes, assimilated with the Caucasian-like original inhabitants. But Heyerdahl makes a clear distinction that the white culture bringers were of a higher civilization, spreading the knowledge as they went. And there's no secret that... You know, Heyerdahl was a strong proponent of diffusion. More correct would be to describe his idea as hyperdiffusion. Reading the books, we see a lot of this colonial language used to minimize the indigenous people, similar to while Europeans tend to invent things other cultures stumble upon a discovery. Authors like Halton and Mangelsen point out that this kind of diffusion is used even to this day and is actually impacting legislation, often to deny lands and other benefits to the indigenous populations. Peru's government even supported Heyerdahl's expedition since it endorsed the idea that the whites owned the grounds before the Quencha, therefore they would not need to return any land. Halton also points out that this white race idea has been used in Bolivia, Paraguay and Brazil to exalt a preferred prehistory while being able to turn down claims from the indigenous people. Reading Heyerdahl's 1952 book American Indians in the Pacific, we see many racial ideas ranging from racial hygiene to racial wars. While the culture bearers are described as white with red or blonde hair, 
It's not proposed that this necessarily came from Europe in Heyerdahl's 1952 book, but it seems as Heyerdahl changed his mind somewhat when trying to prove the Mediterranean migration from South America with his expedition Ra and Ra II. The supporters also like to point out that Heyerdahl never identified as a racist, and neither am I claiming that Heyerdahl was. But the language and ideas presented within his books are inherently colonial and racist. This is actually a point that we all seem to agree upon. But Solsvik and others blame this on the era in which Heyerdahl wrote. And these explanations uh, were not uncommon for the time. When reading the text, as uh, the Contiki Museum puts it, Tor Heyerdahl did not view black or primitive as inferior in any way. Now this is a statement that sounds a bit odd when we see in the books a clear order where high civilization is associated with white bearded men, while other non-white groups are viewed as violent and primitive. We can't really see these ideas in some sort of vacuum. These books are used by different white supremacy organizations and authors like Arthur Kemp, even if some didn't think the ideas was wrong back when he wrote it. We know much better now and we really need to start to deal with this legacy. And I also feel it's essential to note that Heyerdahl continued to argue for these hyperdiffusion ideas well after Colin Renfuse before civilization, when archaeology switched to a more post-processal approach. In the later books, we continue to see these uh, depictions like in people to Neanderthals or depicting people of different colors as more primitive. Heyerdahl also never recanted or changed any of his ideas and was trying to prove them until he died in 2002. And if you would go to the Kontika Museum in Oslo, you find a museum that's focusing mainly on Heyerdahl as the adventurer and the worker for world peace. The racial ideas are conveniently left out. And when it was pointed out that the museum had colonial practices within their exhibition, they defended this by claiming that the skull that was mainly referred in that discussion was collected within the standards of 1950. I bring this up because we need to deal with these pseudo-archaeological claims even if we don't really want to. We also need to accept that these ideas have real-world consequences. The upside of Hadel's thesis is that the scientific community worked hard to see if there was any truth to these ideas. And thanks to this, we now have maybe one of our best understood prehistoric migration processes. While the study in nature is fascinating, it doesn't mean that Hadel was right. He was partially correct, but... His white gods should be dismissed as the pseudoscience it is. To tie these segments back together, you remember the Ahu or foundation that Giorgio Sukalos mentioned before? Now this wall was evidence of connection between Cusco and Rapa Nui. Well, this is a Heyerdahl idea. Sure, Sukalos added some aliens, but it's an example on how pseudoscience can influence other pseudoscience. And on that note, remember to leave a positive review anywhere you can, such as iTunes, Spotify, or to your friend at the trench. I would also recommend you visiting diggingupancientaliens.com to find out info about me and the podcast. 
You can also find me on most social media sites. And if you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or you want to write an email in all caps, you'll find my contact info on the website. You will also find all the sources and resources used to create this podcast on the same episode webpage. There you also find further reading suggestions if you want to learn more about the subject we bring up. And you also find a transcript with in-text references. So before you really write that angry email, I see you, Norway, read through them first and then write. First read and write. Yeah, okay, great. Sandra Martelor created the intro music and our outro is by the band called Tralskruv, who sings their song Tinfoil Hat. Links to both of these artists will be found in the show notes. Until next time, keep shoveling that science. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com support to read more information and sign up right there. 